Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we're sharing a conversation we originally released almost three years ago, before many of you had started listening to the podcast. It's a discussion we had with Fiona and Terrell Givens about the ground-shifting book they published in 2020 through Faith Matters Publishing called All Things New, Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between. When this book was first published, we knew it had potential to truly change lives and to change how Latter-day Saints see the world. It really did this for us. The book starts by tracing the roots of our religious vocabulary and shows how many fundamental gospel concepts and words have become unmoored from their original foundations, and in many cases can get us stuck in a gospel of fear that places limits on God's love and grace. Fiona and Terrell show us how we can renovate that vocabulary to embrace a gospel of hope where there is no final buzzer or sad heaven, because in their words, salvation and heaven are not rewards that God can disperse or that we can earn. Relationships are forged. Life is the school of love, and our growing capacity for love constitutes the bricks out of which the heavenly Zion will be constructed. In the book and in our conversation, Terrell and Fiona address everything from our concepts of heaven, sin, salvation, exaltation, and family togetherness in the eternities. We found the work they do in this important book to be immensely healing and hopeful. You can pick up a copy of All Things New at Desert Book or on Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. We're so grateful to Fiona and Terrell for the amazing work they're doing here, and we really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Okay, Fiona and Terrell Givens, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, we're delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're, um, of course, we're, we're here to, to talk about your new book, All Things New. Um, this is something that Obviously, as the Faith Matters team, we've been involved in and so excited about for for many months now, and seeing it come to fruition is really um, is really really cool. One uh, one thing, where, one place where I thought I would I would like to start is by reading one of my favorite blurbs, which which appears on the back of the book. And there are several, I mean, which are really um, really amazing what people have been saying uh, so far about this. Um, but my favorite one is actually from Michael McLean, um, who's a songwriter and uh, producer in our, in our uh, tradition. And what he said about the book was, after reading this remarkable new work by Terrell and Fiona Givens, I'm chronicling my faith journey as before all things new and after all things new. I'll never think of sin, salvation, and everything in between in the same way. It's a gift my soul has been longing for. And I just thought that was a truly, you know, a truly remarkable thing for someone to say, like, this is the, this is sort of a, you know, a waypoint in their, in their journey that it's a, it's a before and after. And, um, and when I read, when I read the book, I, I felt like that's the type of potential that this book has as well. I just, I feel like you two have been sort of in this world, um, for, for many years now and in many ways, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but in many ways to me, having read uh, much of your work, I, I felt like it's sort of the, uh, the culmination of what you've been, you've been saying for, uh, for many years. And so it's, it's really, it's, it's been meaningful to me. I know it has been to Aubrey and I think it will be to a lot of people. So start off just by saying, thank you for, thank you for writing this book. Yeah. Um, would you, would you mind just to get us started, perhaps talking about a little bit about the origins of the, of the book and what, what prompted you to write it? Well, I'll, I'll jump in. Okay. Um, I, I, I think it all started with the God who weeps actually. That was, mm. um, that sort of, you know, that the world you said we're in, I thought it was a pretty lovely way of putting it, but it is true. It launched us into this world. And, um, you know, and then it followed up with the Christ who heals and we were still going. And, and I think we thought we'd probably finished. We haven't done one on the Holy Spirit yet. But um, but this is sort of a natural extension of those of those uh, those two books. And and I feel the same way you do. You do. It's like, you know, suddenly, I don't know, it all came together. <laughs> Didn't it really in this one? It did, yeah. I'm reminded of a famous incident that occurred with Sterling McMurn. He was a very controversial, flamboyant, intellectual, cultural Mormon back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. He was Commissioner of Education under John F. Kennedy. Um, he, He wrote one of the first books that kind of presented Mormon theology to a general audience, uh, the Philosophical Foundations of the Mormon Religion. 
he tells a story that he was accosted in the hallway at the University of Utah, I think is where he was at the time, by a colleague who said, Sterling, I read your book. You make Mormonism sound so much more sophisticated and profound than it is. And he said, uh, yeah, I know. He said, that's because all Mormons think it's so much less sophisticated and profound. Than it is. <laughs> and that's kind of been a mantra for me. Uh, ever since reading that. <clears throat> and I think that's one way of, of thinking about what Fiona's and my project has been over the years, has been to, to, to try to reveal the hidden depths and glories and incredible, I think, uh, intellectual and aesthetic appeal of the Restoration Doctrines, because we have been, we've labored under the shadow of a re reformation heritage. And so we still kind of present our religion to the world as a kind of offshoot of, you know, the, the reformers prepared the way and we just go a little further. And that's just, that's absolute bunk. Um, there's, a, there's a radical resonance and a kind of daring, audacious novelty to Joseph Smith's reconstitution of theology that, that we're still in the work of excavating. And I, I think too, when, um, I was uh, doing research for the Christ to Heals when we were working on that. Um, I spent most of my time in the patristic tradition, so before Augustine, and it, it just, it blew me away. Um, how One, how resonant the theology of the first centuries were and of how resonant it was with Joseph's own writings and own words it was just some some of the quotes were almost verbatim and so well, me I, I you know, really struck me okay this is a restoration this really is a restoration and it's a restoration of all of the beautiful gospel before Augustine actually yeah. before Romans for the Latins oh, <laughs> that really is one thing I think that stood out most to me about the book I think the Christianity that is most familiar to me was uh, it was something that was totally influenced by the creeds and by Augustine, and I just didn't even see it. Maybe could you just give us a little um, introduction to the creeds and, and talk about the way we're influenced inside the church by all of these traditions that were maybe invisible to us? Yeah, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, Joseph Smith famously comes out of the grove having learned that the creeds, quote, were an abomination. And I think for a hundred years or more, we have always assumed that he was talking about the medieval creeds, the fourth century creeds of the Catholic church, uh, the Athanasian creed and, and, and the Nicene creed. And, and I, that's absolutely wrong. I, I think that's demonstrably false because Joseph Smith and Oliver Cadre and his other colleagues repeatedly referred to the creeds in his own lifetime. They were always referring to the Westminster Confession or the Articles of the Church of England. Um, Joseph said in his last recorded sermon, the Catholic Church has more truth than all the rest. Catholic creeds weren't the problem. The fact that you unembody God isn't nearly as significant as all of the other developments that take place under Luther and Calvin. So very specifically, in very concrete language, Luther and Calvin espouse uh, the lack of free will, uh, absolute determinism, predestination, um, absolute corruption, uh, a God without body parts or passions, uh, and passions here being the most important, meaning that God is incapable of being moved by our suffering. And then perhaps most catastrophic of all, they emphasize what they define as the sovereignty of God. And, and again, they're very explicit, very concrete language. They say what that sovereignty means is that nothing happens without God not just permitting it, but without God willing it and ordaining it. So whether you're talking about the sexual assault of your friend or whether you're talking about the Holocaust, God is personally responsible for having planned and ordained those events. So God becomes this distant, remote, indecipherable being who we can no longer relate to as a loving, paternal father in a literal sense. And all of this is taking place in the 16th century. And we, we, we see evidence of it, of this influence everywhere, I think, in Latter-day Saint rhetoric and vocabulary and, and, and presuppositions. For example, the most common, I think, instance is this fatal error we step into that, that you hear all the time. Why did God allow that? Why did God permit that? 
well, you're reverting to a Calvinist paradigm if you're assuming that God is orchestrating <laughs> all events. Um, uh, in more particular instances, why did God allow Brigham Young to do X? Why did God permit Joseph? Again, you're presuming that God is the puppet master controlling the strings. And that's a presupposition that we have inherited from this, this, this kind of Protestant culture and worldview. Um, going back, Terrell started with the first vision. I, I think it wasn't until a year or so ago that I that this just really struck me is that Joseph's delaying yeah, about yeah. going to God um, because he fears that he will be upbraided. This is a very Calvinist God. Joseph believes that God is exactly a wrathful, vengeful God waiting for you to make a mistake so he can punish you quickly for a very long time. Um, but but he, so he says, you know, I, I, I determined finally after however long to to ask God to venture um, well well that, hoping that He might not upbraid me, and therefore I might venture. So He was really thinking He's going to go into the grove, and this really terrifying God is going to appear to him, and 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 just and, and upbraid means that just scold harshly, like what are you doing? Thinking you could talk to me? Who are you? And and venture is is undertaking a journey that is hazardous. And that may cost your life. So, what I what I what I love is a transformation as Joseph goes with fear and trepidation into the grove, and then after his encounter with deity, his life is completely changed. And 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 Joseph's God is the God of the restoration. He is the God of of the that the, the first four centuries where you know he he had he was a friend. You know, um, I can't remember who it is, but this idea that God came out of the garden with Adam and Eve to earth, that he never left their presence, that it was not a punishment. He was not ejecting them from the garden because he didn't like them anymore or because they disobeyed. Um, quite the contrary, this mortal journey was absolutely essential and he came with us. So you just do things like that, you know, uh, that Adam and Eve, the way they portray Adam and Eve as being like children um, in the way that they weren't experienced. They weren't sexually aware for one thing, but that, you know, how important it was for them to become mortal so that all and and that mortality was educative, which is, I I think, exactly um, what Joseph was restoring. So I don't know. It's just terribly exciting. (laughs) Yeah. And what you were saying about Joseph Smith really, um, is interesting to me because I feel like it sheds new light on one of the scriptures that we quote, quote most often in the church, and that's James 1, 5. And I, I feel like that what we emphasize in that scripture always is, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And that's sort of the origin of the, um, of the first vision. But maybe the more important part of that verse, like you're saying, Fiona, is the part where it says, and, and upbraideth not. You know, maybe that is the portion that gave Joseph the courage to say, this is, you know, perhaps this is the type of God that I'm going to be approaching. Yeah. yeah, President or Elder Holland said something I thought that was really quite um, quite brilliant and and instructive in one of the recent conferences when he talked about uh, I think he was quoting William Ellery Channing right who, who said one of the most fundamental yeah. principles of Christianity is the paternal nature of God mm-hmm. and what happens very early on I mean if you think about how how by the early Middle Ages or, or high Middle Ages people are burning people alive at the stake in the name of God. They are embarking on crusades, slaughtering men, women, and children in the name of God. So part of what we're trying to track in this most recent book is how does the paternal nature of God get warped and transformed into belief in a sovereign God, a ruler God, a kingly God who has dominion over subjects rather than fatherly concern over a child. And so really in some ways the most remarkable thing about the restoration is that it takes us back and says, no, paternal isn't just a metaphor. It isn't, we're not just talking about kind of analogies here. It's literal. And, and all kinds of gospel doctrines become radically reconceived if you take that literally. Um, for example, I remember sitting in the congregation listening to a broadcast of Elder Haight, one of the last he gave before he passed away, in which he pleaded with parents of the church, Elder Hales, Hales, 
Thank you. And he said, uh, I plead with you, never, never, never shut the door of your hearts to your children. And I thought, well, if if we take that as inspired admonition, then certainly we would have to presume that our father would never shut the door of his hearts to us. And suddenly the notions of judgment, of the hereafter, of eternal progression, take a radically different complexion if we believe God is not a sovereign giving his subjects one last chance, but he's a father who would never give up on a child. Uh, it, it changes everything. And I love the fact that our, our scriptures are so redolent to these truths. I mean, we it, it's sort of a cliche. We say it over and over again, Moses one thirty nine. But if you really read it, is you know this is our work and our glory as the divine family to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of every single one of the children who came, who are here, and who will come. I mean, that is phenomenal. It's such a break with um, Reformation theology um, and, and, and Augustinian theology, this idea that, you know, this is our work and our glory. And if we don't do it, if if one of our children doesn't come home, then we failed. You know, and so it, 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 I, I just... I think another example of this is I, I wish we could hear more of our ref, Restoration scriptures in, in a historical context to appreciate how really different the tone is. I'm thinking of Moses 7, not just the fact of a God who weeps, but the particular answer he gives when Enoch asks, how is, how is this possible? And what happens is really quite remarkable here. The Lord rehearses effectively, Heavenly Father rather, rehearses effectively the two great commandments, right? I gave commandment to my children that they should love me, their father, and that they should love one another, And then he doesn't follow that up by saying, but behold, they're not worshiping me. They're not honoring me, which is, right, the sovereign God speaking. Instead, he says, but but they're without affection and they're they're shedding each other's blood. So like a true parent, he's concerned about the way his children are treating each other, not the way they're treating him. And again, that's what an incredible psychological transformation of the mind of God in that restoration scripture. And we, we could go in fur, uh, even further, and we do go further, is uh, the fact that we worship God by serving each other. So we as Latter-day Saints who have made the covenants at baptism, if, if, if we are um, uh, walking with each other in our pain, mourning and comforting, um, we, we are worshipping God. It's very King Benjamin. King Benjamin's words are just so striking in that regard. And you can't say, I'm so sorry, but you're just not deserving. You know, it's, it, you, you are under condemnation if you were to turn anybody away. So it really conflates those two commandments. Right. We think of them as coming in competition. Well, we have to worship God. Right. We're good at that, right. but sometimes we're not good. And it's like, no, no, no. If you're not loving one another, you're not worshipping me. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's how it's done. Yeah. Right? It makes me think of that. You mentioned the the Francine Benyon quote, I think, at the beginning of the book, where she says, "Does theology really even matter?" or something like that, and and can't we all just be kind and patient? And so, I, maybe you can talk about that because I feel like that's a sentiment that a lot of people are starting to share. Like, maybe I don't have to wade through all of this complicated theology, and maybe the at the end of the day, I just have to be a good, kind, patient person. And why does it even why does it matter? Like, why do I need to find these contradictions and wrestle and think about? you know, each of these different scriptures and how they changed over time. And can I just be kind? And is that enough? Yeah, that's such a great, great point. Um, and by the way, that talk you referred to, I think is one of the greatest talks given in the history of the modern church, that, that talk by Francine. What a brave, courageous theological exposition she gives there. But yeah, that's one of the greatest fallacies of the modern age, right? And I think it's especially endemic in these generations. I, 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 I'm not sure in the alphabet of the X or Y or what generations we're talking about anymore. But the younger generations who who just want to reduce the gospel to, to tolerance, right? Oh, just we just love everybody and let them do the thing. But the point is, what what we believe about human potential and God's intentions regarding human destinies is going to shape the nature of the love that we that we show. I mean, to give a banal example, right? 
you don't show love for your child by saying, yeah, you're, you're hooked on cocaine. Here's some more because that's what makes you happy. No, we assume that what an individual thinks is her or his immediate need or desire isn't always in the best interests of that person's long-term happiness and joy. We have to have a conception of, well, what is my child capable of? What is their potential? What might they grow into if I foster better habits and better practices? So in a similar way, if we understand our real nature, that we are literally children of God, that we're not depraved, that we're not born into sin, that he wants us to become like him, then that will shape the kinds of lives we're trying to lead. It will shape our openness to being directed and counseled and directed in particular ways and directions. Well, that's theology. We're, we're, we're talking about theology. And I, and I, I, th- I think also that, uh, particularly, I mean, uh, in our faith tradition, that uh, young people are leaving because they've been raised with um, with a terrifying God. And um, of course you're going to leave. You're, you're going to drop religion altogether because they're Christian and, you know, they, they, they no real alternative has has been presented to them. At least that's, you know, as we've traveled doing firesides, and, and this is not just in the United States, this is around the world. I understand. And to be honest, they are right. But it would be so much easier. You'd feel like you had encouragement or that, yes, you were actually doing something divine by being patient and kind. Suddenly, it's not just being patient and kind. It's you're actually helping in divine healing, helping the divine in healing each other. And, and so for me, um, th- th- this is a global thing. Um, uh, there are there are beautiful kind of people who are actually keeping these covenants, although they're unaware of them. And and God has many names. And so, you know, for me, suddenly it extends. I think this is why theology is so important, because it extends beyond our particular tradition to the entire globe. And both Terrell and I feel that our job, you know, God's job is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. Our job is to create Zion. And that Zion is a global Zion. I think we've spent too much time thinking we're special people and these special people have, well, they have their own Zion. Well, we're all children of, of, of God. So, um, you, and, and you see this, you see this in other religious traditions that I really do feel that there's this concerted effort to reach across borders, to reach, across, whether it may be political or um, otherwise, um, you know, to, 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 create something beautiful to make something beautiful that, of the earth. That shift in ways of thinking about Zion is really important because it has very real world consequences. And mm-hmm. we're both really thrilled that we, we feel the brethren have really been shifting in that direction, talking more and more <clears throat> about ourselves as having a role to play rather than having this commanding supervision of the project and, uh, you know, temples and an understanding of the eternal family are, those are part of our contributions, ordinances um, but, but as Fiona said, if we understand that, as the scriptures tell us, Joseph Smith will bring to pass much restoration, and that's mm-hmm. the scripture language, not all restoration, but I think it induces more humility on our part and a more openness and generous recognition of, of the contributions of people and traditions throughout the world and throughout history. And that that's canonized in our articles of faith, isn't it? So beautiful. Anything that we see that is beautiful, lovely, praiseworthy, wherever we find it, we embrace that. Mm. So I, it, I don't know. I, I seem to, you know, we seem to be finding these beautiful, incredible, um, I, I suppose, gems within the restoration texts themselves. Now, that I mean, somebody is going to come back and say, "Well, you know, there is that wrathful, vengeful God in the Book of Mormon." If you've read it, have <laughs> 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 you read this, Fiona? And yes, I think, I think when we look at the paradigm, so in the early Christianity, the paradigm was our God, loving gentle, parental, uh, working with us, collaborating with us so that we could reach the measure of our creation. Um, But unfortunately, um, the Book of Mormon came out in the 19th century. And the 19th century was dominated by a religious tradition that was essentially Calvinist. And and, and so there had to be a language, there had to be a familiar language spoken so that people would have a bridge to cross into the rest, 
into the restoration. Um, and, and, and Brigham Young himself said, you know, had the Book of Mormon been written in any other century, it would be completely different from the 19th century version. So I think if we understand that, it's helped me, I have to yeah. say, considerably. Okay, this is a paradigm in which they were working. This is a 19th century text. Just grab all of the 21st century yeah. things you possibly can out of it. Yeah. And there are a lot in there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add a couple. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask if that's your litmus test. You know, I think there are, there are so many contradictions that don't matter that are totally innocuous, like lineage or dates and it doesn't matter. But like when you find a contradiction that is about the character of God, how do you decide what you go with? It turns out, you know, sometimes we think that we moderns are the first people to to, to have to grapple with (laughs) these problems. Well, the first real theologian of the church who wrote the first systematic treatment of Christianity was Origen, early third century. And he is the first to grasp this bull by the horns. And and, and he does provide exactly that, a litmus test. And I think it's inspired. He says, if we know the nature of God, then the litmus test for interpreting scripture is this question, is what I am reading or interpreting worthy of God. And that's the language he uses. Are his actions or his words worthy of God? And if they are not, if they are not, then I'm going to privilege what I know about his nature over what the language of scripture is telling us. Now, if we would take that to heart, we'd be in such a better place, right? Um, C.S. Lewis has rephrased that principle in modern times. I don't know if he got it plagiarize it from origin, or he came up with it independently. But he said the same thing. He said, I know something through my personal experiences of the divine, of the nature of God. And if scriptures are out of harmony with that, I'm going to go with the nature of God. We know Joseph Smith over 12 times in the Book of Mormon translates the language of plain and precious things being missing, the corruption of the scriptures. Brigham Young said many parts of the scriptures are written by angels, many are written by men, and many were written by devils. So we we need to let go of this stranglehold that fundamentalism has on our approach to scripture. We have seen in our own history that our prophets have mediated or or the voice of God has been mediated to them through their cultural prisms in which they live. We can't abstract ourselves from our own historical moment. So God's capacity to speak to prophets is always constrained to some extent by the limits of language, as Joseph Smith said, and by the the pervasive influence of culture in, in which we're all immersed. Yeah. One of those things that I feel like was really not worthy of God. I, I love the chapter about heaven and you went through time and, and all of the different concepts that Christians have had of heaven. And at some time that looked like you got to stand on a pedestal and watch the people burning in hell. And, you know, and I, but I also think that that's something that's left over that causes a lot of pain inside the church, this idea of an empty heaven that you'll get to heaven and there'll be empty seats at the table and the people that you love won't be there. And I felt like your, the way you talked about heaven was so healing. And so I wonder if you would just give us a little bit of an introduction into a new way to think about heaven. Uh, I'll I'll introduce this. Um, One of our, one of our children um, had a nightmare. He was young. He was very young. And the nightmare was that um, there was this boat, probably um, a liner, and there were so many people on it and everybody in his family, but he was not allowed to get on the boat. And and I I, I think I, I think that caused an incredible trauma in him as a it young boy. It probably came from the children's primary song. Help me, help me learn to do that. I will before it grows too late. Yeah, and obviously, yes, I'm a child of God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he'd missed. It was six o'clock the time. That was when it grew too late, and he he was at five past six, and the boat sailed without him. But I remember oh. that the depth of his sorrow and anguish as a little boy. Um, and I'm not sure that that's entirely left him. It's, you know, traumatic things that happen to you very young um, take on a, a massive um, significance for the rest of your life, I think. So, so we've traced the history of how LDS prophets have understood the scope of God's capacity to exalt us. So we, we try to be clear in all our work. We're not, we're not proclaiming doctrine, but we are um, reconstituting history 
and excavating and history and celebrating that history. <laughs> and, and Joseph Smith clearly believed that we would continue to progress indefinitely until we all find ourselves back in God's presence. I mean, he was very clear about mm-hmm. this. And the scriptural record seems to affirm this in his own life, right? In section 76, he sees the characterizations and qualifications for the various degrees of glory. He had been traumatized by the death of Alvin. When it comes to the terrestrial kingdom, he he reads or hears, right, that, that that's where the honorable men of the earth who died without a knowledge of the gospel would go. And well, that seems yeah. clear by, by context that he would have assumed, thank goodness, Alvin is at least in that kingdom. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think it's important, again, Joseph is working from a particular paradigm. He's working from a paradigm that if you die, unbaptized and uncatechized, you go to hell and you never come out of it. And that's that's the paradigm in which he's working. So, so at least it's progress to make right. it a terrestrial Right, well, yeah, and so you, you, you're absolutely <laughs> right. He knows, he knows Alvin. He knows Alvin was a beautiful, noble and great man. So the relief, but then, but then in the, section the shock in 137. A few years later. And he uses the word amazed. I think this is a wonderful thing, that the prophet himself finds himself amazed to see Alvin in the celestial kingdom. And so we think that that's the moment when it was confirmed in his mind that God would never shut the door, as Elder Hales had, had, had said. Um, many, many other indications. Brigham Young explicitly said that, that we would all progress bit by bit until we find ourselves back in God's presence. Virtu- uh, Hiram Smith said that like the moon that can wax and wane, James kingdoms Talmadge. are fluid. James Talmadge in the first edition of the Articles of Faith said, of course, we can progress from kingdom to kingdom. God will never limit the extent of our ability to repent. Um, B.H. Roberts said, why would we call it eternal progression? of progress? In other words, it's everywhere. It's pervasive until we get to the 1960s and 70s. And then a few really? of the leading in the quorum mm-hmm. shut that down. And the church does have an official position on this. And the official position is we have no official position. (laughs) And they've stated that twice. So it is not church doctrine that you cannot progress, nor is it doctrine that you can. So we, in our own personal discipleship, are committed to a reading of church history and scripture that in which God will never shut the door of his hearts and that there will eventually be no empty chairs at the table. One particular phrase in section 76 that I think some people have uh, issue with, or at least in relation to what you're saying, is that world without end, where God and Christ dwell, they cannot come worlds without end, which I, I, at least growing up, I always read that meaning ever, 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 you know, eternally. And so yeah, how, do you, how do you deal with that phrase? That's how Joseph Fielding Smith read that. And it, worlds without end is a, is a Hebraism it's in its Hebraic formulation. It's just another way of saying pertaining to God. Just as in section 19, we're told that eternal means pertaining to the nature of God. Eternal punishment doesn't mean punishment without any end. We're told that specifically. And I think in the same sense, worlds without end does not mean a time that goes on forever. It can also mean in its original Hebrew construction, a very, very, very long time. And so indeed, we believe that it might be millions of years, eons, who knows? We're not... We have to emphasize, because we're so easily misinterpreted, in no way, shape, or form are we suggesting that any kind of progress or salvation is automatic. Mm -hmm. It's not. So we'd rather call this what uh, a friend of ours calls the no final buzzer doctrine. (laughs) Uh, Nothing, you know, it's like the game is never over until we decide it's over. Yeah. Um, but we will have to pay the price. We will have to learn to change. We will have to repent perennially. Just um, James Talmadge said, of course, there will be repentance in heaven because we don't die perfect. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah. And besides, I love playing games. And so the idea of living in a universe where games, <laughs> you stop playing games, you know, you stop doing something, it just stays pretty terrifying to me. Yeah. So you know, just for myself personally, this idea of, you know, creating new relationships, developing new relationships. I mean, we've got billions and billions of people. I mean, look at all of these potential friends we can hang out with. So the idea of it stopping at some mm-hmm. point is really quite terrifying to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah. this idea of, of continuing to grow in love and intelligence and, um, yeah, that, 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 that suddenly I'm not so harrowed by the idea of death, you know? Yeah. 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 I really liked 
I just feel like this would maybe be a good time to talk about sin because I think there was this constant shift in that chapter of, of, it was just a reminder that this is about education, not, not a final test. And I feel like in the church, we kind of still talk about both. Like in some, in some lessons and talks, it sounds like everything's a test. It's a test to see if you pass or not. And it seems like that mentality is really what, what causes a lot of guilt and shame and So maybe if you could talk, and I love, um, if you want to talk about the guilt versus remorse, I thought that was a really helpful way to frame how to, how you feel when you do something wrong. Okay. Let me, let me address guilt versus remorse. And I'm going to talk about, um, what was the other, the final, uh, about being, education versus final, yeah, yeah. And Fiona will talk about it. So guilt versus remorse, we're simply making the point, and this is a point that I really appreciate President Nelson making repeatedly. It seems to be one of his special themes that spirituality can be intensely selfish, right? If, if we're always setting up a standard and we're trying to achieve that standard and we're worried about our own standing before God, that's a completely self-centered, preoccupied way of approaching life and discipleship. And guilt falls under that paradigm. Guilt is a selfish experience because we're worried about ourselves, our standing, our record. That's not the godly sorrow that leads us to change. What leads us to change is 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 feeling the pain that we have caused somebody else. And that's remorse. And so I think remorse is other-directed. Guilt is self-directed. Remorse is constructive and indicative of a growing closeness and sensitivity to the spirit. Guilt can just be a kind of self-image hang-up that isn't productive or, or, or useful in, in any way. So that's a distinction that I think we would make. Mm-hmm. And as far as life being a test, most of that comes from our reading of the book of Abraham, where we, we have a, a kind of a view of the council in heaven, and we're told that earth will be built and that we will be proven in all things, right? We will prove them herewith. Well, you know, it's really useful a lot of times to go back to Webster's 1828 Dictionary to see what did this word mean when Joseph Smith was using it and in that cultural context. And prove means to reveal something through experimentation. And I think that's such a healthy way of thinking about why we're here. We're here so that our character can develop and be revealed in a crucible of experience. God isn't just giving us a test to which he can assign a grade at the end. He already knows us and our nature. Why would that be necessary? That that just seems like a kind of silly, uh, and I think in many ways, a kind of um, undignified way of thinking about God and his relationship to us. We're here to be proven to grow through experiment, through trial, and, and, and so forth. And as far as it being a final test or a final exam at judgment, well, you know, I can ask you, Aubrey, how many final exams did you take in in your education? <laughs> More than one. <laughs> yeah. More than one. <laughs> so, you know, that expression, final exam or final yeah. judgment, I think means final as it pertains to a particular phase in our educational wow. ascent. So uh, otherwise, it would it just, it can't, it just doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you have five years of life or 50 eternity hangs in the balance depending on where you are at that moment uh, that's that's patently absurd i think well just um you know i i've learned from my own experience when i'm very convinced of something i tend to be uh, excited about this people could classify that as strident and i don't think they'd be far off <laughs> anyway so um i was i was strident i think in a conversation up First of all, I thought, you know, I was right, and it was just a really macho female thing to do. And um, but but as as I've as I've progressed in my life, I, I look back on that situation and I think, you know, one, you're feeling guilt. You're feeling guilt, it's all about me. Um, and and two, um, you need to look at it from, you know, you need to look at this more closely. So it sort of the guilt developed into remorse. And it was like, you know, that really wasn't necessary what I did. And so this was years ago. And so recently I um, I um, emailed uh, the, these lovely people who were in that particular meeting to apologize and say, I'm so terribly sorry I, I came across that way. And their response was, oh, really? We don't remember that conversation. 
Um, <laughs> when, when did we have that conversation? I mean, it was just extraordinary. They'd forgotten. Yeah. So, so you notice their forgiveness, that they'd never actually taken offense to begin with. But I obviously felt guilty about it. But it wasn't until I moved from guilt to remorse that I actually had the courage to say, I'm terribly sorry. And, um, and and remorse is wonderful. Guilt hounds you. It's it's like a chain around your neck. I had this lovely friend of mine, and that we 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 had a, a moment of disagreement or something. And anyway, for years she's been carrying um, the guilt of her action. And um, and and then you know they, we we saw each other, and she just. She said, Fiona, I just have to tell you, I'm just so sorry about what happened. It was something very, very minor, but it obviously had plagued her. And in that, in that moment of forgiving and forgiveness, of course, I'd forgiven her a long time ago, but she didn't know that. I didn't ever say, I just didn't even know that she was aware of it. But that it was, it's like it was a heaven opening experience mm. as we wept and we embraced each other and suddenly our relationship was so much more than it ever possibly could have been had it not been for that experience and then that privilege of being able to, to live in that forgiving moment and just know that we were, we were surrounded by divinity. Um, See, that's why I love relating the concept of charity and love and compassion to Section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about the light of Christ and how it pervades the entire universe. And I just have this visual understanding of love working in that way that that christ's love tries to permeate the cosmos but our our inhibitions and remorse guilt um our anger all of those things impede the flow of christ's perfect love and that's kind of i remember mm -hmm. watching that scene from a distance and it was like a dam breaking and suddenly, right, love could disseminate again mm -hmm. freely as it was supposed to. Um, I, I remember. You're right. If we do, we damn up love. We damn we it damn up. Love. And that's why I was so mm -hmm. moved by this testimony, this, this beautiful young man in our ward. Um, a brother had died tragically. He lived with, with this pain of a death that had been caused by apparently the, the ineptitude or the malice of a third party. And he said, my prayer all these years has just been to not get in the way of God's forgiveness. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to think about life. Just don't let me be an impediment right. to somebody else's, right, enjoying the fruits of, of, of Christ's love. But you never got to the oh, subject yes. of sin no, itself. But, yeah, I, I am going to get to the subject of sin right now. It's my favorite subject <laughs> all the while. Yeah. Um, but but Joseph articulates that. You know, he says, as you're progressing, as you grow in love, you know, when somebody offends you, you, you just want to throw it behind your back so that they're behind. There's nothing that obstructs, obstructs you anymore. So I think he was saying that very beautifully, what we were saying. As far as sin is concerned, you know, I've been laboring um, long um, over this, uh, the, the, this subject. And um, the, the more I have read, and it, it, it's so very exciting that we live in this time, Aubrey, um, because there is so much attention now being paid paid to trauma. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you know. So um, it was it was after Vietnam um, when PTSD was when it was actually given a name. Um, these flashbacks that these um, soldiers were having, but then also um, I remember reading about uh, a, a Jewish girl, third generation, so from the Holocaust. And um, and she was suffering trauma. She was suffering the trauma three generations later because the thing was never forget. You must never forget, never allow them to forget. And so their lives were damned. They couldn't go any further because they were carrying all of this burden with them. And so that is actually when, you know, this, this real in-depth look at trauma started. And now it's just everywhere. Um, Can I just interrupt yeah, 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 a historical yeah. footnote? I yeah. just don't want to distract too no, much. No. But when I was a young child, we were investigating the church. We took a church history tour. My father took us across country. And I remember we went to Carthage Jail, and I remember the guide pointed to the spot on the floor where you could mm -hmm. still see the blood stains, and they were in this glass thing. When President Kimball became president, he, he instructed that was not to be a practice anymore. And they removed that part from the presentation. Mm. Because he thought, how can how can we heal from this if we're parentally celebrating, 
right? This bloody martyrdom and bringing it into kind of public awareness. I just That's thought that really was an good. interesting example. Yeah, yeah. really excellent. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I, 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 for me now, trauma is universal, and um, and well, I, the statistics are just astounding. Right, right? now we've become aware of sexual right. abuse. Oh yeah, physical abuse. Yeah. Um, it, it just well, and then gen- and generational trauma. I, I was I've always been bothered about that scripture, and I bet you have as well. Um, where God says, you I know, I will visit the sins of this generation to the third and fourth generation, and I always thought, well, that's mean. I'm not going to do to you. I mean, they're innocent, so you know, immediately it's like, okay, I really hate this God, but I would like to believe in God. So you know, you have to think this through. But if you replace sin with trauma then yes Mm. absolutely and I can see in our family in our children the trauma Terrell and I have inherited from our parents who have inherited it from their parents and so and and this and this is Moses 6 uh starting in about verse 53 I think I love scriptures you you, especially very long ones because when you get to about verse 53 you switch off because you're too tired (laughs) And that's when God says, okay, here's the really exciting part and you're already asleep. So Adam and Eve have gone to God and they've said, okay, we've messed up. Um, it's, it's not just Cain. They're doing what every parent does. What we all do is like, okay, what did we do wrong? And then God responds by saying, the children are whole from the foundation of the world. And then here comes the really startling part. The very next verse he starts with, whereas thy children are conceived in sin. And so if our minds are not reverberating like, what? You just said we are whole. And now we are conceived in sin. And then he talks about sin growing in our hearts. And then he ends up by saying, wherefore, they must taste the bitter in order to prize the good. And he said that in Genesis 3.22 and Eve has repeated that in her Ode to Joy in Moses 5.11. And then suddenly you realize that sin is being redefined, something that is injurious, something will, that will make you unwell. And, um, and so then suddenly, that yeah, that needs healing. So then we, mm-hmm. we go to Christ and his ministry, and his ministry was not to die. And this is the unfortunate thing that I think we've inherited from the evangelicals and, and many Christians is that crucifixion has been the, the central point of our doctrine. When it's not, Christ needed to die. There were other really horrible ways from which he could die. I mean, he could have died in medieval England. I mean, hung, drawn, and quartered. I mean, how awful is that? The English come up with really dreadful things. <laughs> <laughs> worse than the Romans, I think. When we look at, at, at humanity, we can all say we are wounded. We are all wounded. Um, and it may be trauma that we've inherited, trauma that we experience in our lifetime, but that seems to be the universal predicament, is woundedness, not mm-hmm. sin. And then we look at Christ's life. I was just going to say, and then all the Old Testament scriptures, suddenly you can read them in a new light, right? Christ comes yeah. with healing. And yes, yes, like come thank to you, darling. Up the broken heart yes, yes, the broken yes, hearted. yes, yes. And so, and we, and we look at Christ every single day of his ministry. What is he doing? He's healing. He's healing the psychologically ill, the emotionally ill, the physically ill. He's raising raising people from the real wound, death. And this is what Christ is doing. And he came to live. Not to die. And I think that's one of the main reasons why the early Christianity was so different from ours, because that was so revolutionary. Everybody thought they were going to die, and that was it. And then Christ comes, and he says, I, I have come to raise you from the dead. And you can imagine the joy. It's like, okay, our lives are going to go on. Our relationships are going to continue. It's just absolutely fabulous. And then came Augustine. Poor man. He was very, <laughs> very, very wounded. Very wounded. Yeah. Very wounded man. <laughs> Can I can I ask a little bit about um, the concept of surprising God that you guys that you guys talk about? And to give our our listeners just a little bit of overarching format of the book, you spend you know the first part of the book sort of talking about um, you know the original Christianity and and where it was deviated from, um, and spend some time on scriptural inerrancy, uh, and then and then you get into very specific terms that we've kind of been going through a little bit, you know, sin, salvation, heaven, all of those things, and. I, but one of the one of the things that just a little tidbit it was just a paragraph that really fascinated me. This idea, um, this idea that we can surprise God is so fascinating to me because I feel like even though we don't teach, like you guys were talking about earlier, preordination, like God certainly didn't in our tradition. We're not saying that 
you know, that awful tragic thing that happened was preordained or decided upon by God in any way. The idea that he knows it in advance can still give us a sense of powerlessness, like regardless of what I choose, like this was going to happen. And, and it does conflict a little bit with the idea that can God know everything and yet not know that something is going to happen. So I I would love for you to just expound on that a little bit. Okay. So I'll, I'll approach it both temperamentally and also philosophically or theologically. Temperamentally, I wouldn't want to be God if I've seen every rerun and read every book, seen every play, and already known every thought and action of every person in advance. Um, I, I can't believe eternity has that, that nature. Um, theologically, the problem is this. Don't we believe that God is omniscient and omnipotent? Well, you can go all the way back to the Middle Ages and they realize, that, oh, those are problematic terms. If you define God as having all power, then, you know, can he make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? You get into all kinds of ridiculous paradoxes. <laughs> so it makes more sense to say, well, if he's omnipotent, then he has all power that exists. Similarly, it's only recently that, at least that I have encountered theologians who are redefining omniscience in this way and saying, well, to be omniscient doesn't mean he knows everything. It means he knows everything that exists. And the future doesn't exist. So he cannot know the future and still be omniscient. So I don't, I don't think his knowledge of the future is limited because it would impede our free agency. That's an argument some philosophers make. I think it's very, very, very flawed. I just think that the nature of the universe and of human will is such that it is never entirely predictable. Now, another reason that this has been difficult historically for theologians to find space for uh, uh, free will and a God who doesn't know everything is because the concept of eternity was defined very differently in early Christianity uh, as it was philosophically. There's a chronological unfolding of events. We call that time. There's a timelessness that we call eternity. But Latter-day Saint prophets and, and, and leaders like B.H. Roberts have redefined eternity. And in our cosmology, it's generally taken to mean simply endless time, time that doesn't stop. So there isn't any perspective where God stands outside of time and sees the past, present, and future, I don't think. And I believe that God delights in being surprised. And I would like to think that there are occasions when he watches, you know, Terrell or Fiona or Aubrey do something and says, well, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, <laughs> thanks, B. They could, you know, what a delightful, unexpected gesture that that, yeah. that just unfolded before me. I I don't I don't want to believe that God is characterless and without humor or emotion or delight. And I think the unexpected is an essential ingredient in all of those. Well, and and as you were saying, you know, God is omnipotent. Um, and I, I think, you know, maybe this is a word we should have included in the book, because as you just said that, I realized omnipotent means God is all love, absolute love. That's omnipotence. One is never so strong as when one loves. And so if you fill the universe with that absolute love, then suddenly, the, again, the whole picture chains, changes. So it's not the fact that he is all powerful, because that's pretty terrifying. We don't like that word powerful. It generally means it's oppressive. Um, but but God as being as a force of love that is irresistible. Exactly. Exactly. That's brilliant. Brilliant. We'll have that as an addendum in the, the second <laughs> Yeah. I love that. Maybe to wrap up, would you guys address the this idea of the disciples of a second sort? Yeah, I I believe one of my favorite figures in LDS history is B.H. Roberts. I think he was a, a man of immense courage, intellectual courage, moral courage. And he just had this insatiable curiosity, right? He was an autodidact. He completely self-educated. Uh, he organizes a, a reading club when he's a young boy in, 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 in Utah. He's a, a phenomenal figure, but he, I think he also was very, very prophetic. And he's quoting Josiah Royce, who was a prominent American philosopher who talked about two kinds of discipleship. One is you just kind of reiterate, you know, like we do in Sunday school. That's one kind of discipleship, just formula, <laughs> formula expressions and rehearsals of what is known. And he said, but there's a deeper, more searching kind of discipleship where you take the seed germ, as he called it, of the gospel, and you find new and more vibrant modes of expression, appropriate to developing persons and developing cultures. 
And he predicted the day would come when the church would rely upon disciples of the second sort to give new, more powerful modes of expression to the core gospel truths. Now, one way in which I think President Nelson is urging us in that direction is his repeated references to the restoration as a process mm-hmm. rather than that's just huge. That's that's huge. Because what it means is that there is still so much territory that is yet to be revealed, explored, expounded, explicated. And so we believe that one of the principal tasks that still awaits us as a people is to continue the work of reforming language and to redefine a religious vocabulary that throws off what Joseph Smith in section 123, go read section 123. It's a phenomenal critique of the extent to which we are still in chains Mm -hmm. to what he calls the creeds inherited from the fathers. So why is Joseph late in his ministry still saying we are still in what he called bonds of iron, a yoke of iron to these creedal conceptions that still pervade. So, I'd like to think that as a Latter-day Saint people, we need to take up this, this task of being disciples of the second sort, finding ways to, to, to characterize, define, construct a vocabulary that reflects the, the, the optimism and the boundlessness uh, and, and the energy that was mm-hmm. there in the seedbed that Joseph Smith restored. And, and you know, I'd just like to add, and, and I'm, I'm not brown-nosing, but I, I do feel, Aubrey, that you and Tim fit that, disciples of the second sort. In fact, I am finding a growing, it's not a mo- movement, I suppose a membership in this disciples of a second sort. Um, I, I look at the Gen Xs and the Gen Zs, um, which, which you belong, and I'm seeing uh, beautiful hearts and minds that um, reach for inclusion and um, and empathy and gentleness. And it's like, I, I just feel that those are the really primary attributes of disciples of the second sort. And so we find everywhere people reaching out, pulling people in, expressing love. And of course, we're going to find the opposite. We'll find a lot of that on the internet. We'll also find the opposite, but you really can't ha- have growth without opposition. But what I am sensing is this surging, you know, as these young people are growing up and entering into adulthood, this surging of of disciples, a community of disciples of the second sort. And I feel Mm -hmm. their power um, and power, absolute love. I I feel that really is a definition of absolute love is power, power. Yes. Um, Just, just reaching out. And I, I am filled with optimism you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not an Armageddon person. I, I, I just feel that if this world um, ended in nuclear holocaust, it would be a complete failure, a complete <laughs> failure for God and a complete failure for humanity. And I don't feel that humanity will, how can humanity fail with God on their side? Do you know what I mean? And so, so what resonates with me is that beautiful scripture and, and Christ will come with Enoch and his city Zion, and they will meet Zion here on earth, so it can't be destroyed, here on earth, and there will be embraced, and Christ will make his home here. So I think, again, there is problems with the vocabulary because people think of the earth being consumed by fire, and so obviously it's got to be nuclear. We have to remember that the paradigm shifted in 1945. Until 1945, this wasn't a real uh, synopsis, but after 1945 dropping of those nuclear bombs. It was. Um, But what is the primary um, identifier of the Holy Spirit? It's fire. It's fire. So when when we say the, the earth is consumed with fire, the earth being consumed by the Holy Spirit I, 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 that resonates really strongly with me. And I think, yes, we are looking at destruction and death and Armageddon and no um, revelation that should be come at the beginning at the New Testament because it talks about the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians and then the Romans. Yes, that would be Holocaust um, for the Jews, having their temple destroyed. Um, but, but for us, um, and I think most definitely for the early Christians, it was this idea of Zion, and they lived 
Zion-like lives. They served and ministered to everyone um, who came down with the plagues, not just members of their own faith tradition, but everybody else. So, so for me, this I, I really feel it is it's 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 a real thing, and it, it's an event to which we are working and which we will create. Thank you both so much. Um, the book is absolutely incredible. We can't we can't recommend that our listeners uh, read it strongly enough. It's um it's really I, I really do think like we you know read on the in some of the blurbs on the back it has the potential to be a, a real game changer in people's mm-hmm. uh, spiritual lives and the way they approach their their own discipleship. So thank you both again. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Aubrey, so very much. Wow. Thank you for bringing the spirit with you. It was so beautiful. Oh. Had this discussion with you. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Terrell and Fiona Gibbons. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.